This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. This episode of The Thin Green Line, we're going to be speaking to Kip Adams of the National Deer Association. And The Thin Green Line is on the Warden's Watch podcast platform now, which has been going over good. I think it exposes a lot of the guys and girls and people that were listening to Warden's Watch to a different aspect. And we just joined that together and it's been very successful. And I'm very happy that we did that, John. Yeah, it's been a good call, man. I think uh, I'm getting a lot of feedback from listeners and viewers, especially out here in the West and Northwest that they they can find them together now, mm. you know, and when there's so many podcasts out there that people are trying to follow to look at them separately uh, and now to see them together, you know, under the Warden's Watch umbrella, this thing's great. And I know, I know we talked to Kip a while ago. I mean, mm. we talked to him uh, the spring of this year, but we're releasing this episode, everybody, because it's so close to deer season. Mm-hmm. We're just about to get into our fall deer seasons. Uh, Kip, we learned, man, Wayne, <laughs> what a great discussion we had with Kip on chronic waste disease how pervasive that is in wildlife species all over the country. Um, but, you know, how he dispel- dispelled some of the rumors of this, th- uh, this disease and how bad it is, um, you know, how pervasive it can be into other species. And now we're finding confirmed cases of COVID-19 mm. in deer species that just dropped. And that brings together uh, stuff we were discussing and speculating on when we actually recorded this interview with Kip. So this is, uh, I think this is one of the best podcasts we've had strictly for people understanding what's going on with this chronic waste disease and a, and a, and a, and a virus like COVID-19 on a human population. The parallels are uncanny and they're ridiculously timed right now right because yeah, it's no all doubt. happening at the same time and uh this is a good one i learned a ton i know you learned a ton and we've been dealing with cwd for years so mm. yeah kip adams great interview coming up and uh can't wait to get some feedback and questions on this one no no doubt so the thin green line kip adams with the national deer association enjoy this one i did learn a lot and i'm sure you guys will too thank you for listening I'm really excited because I've kind of been reunited with Kip Adams. And Kip started off in New Hampshire as our deer and bear biologist. So he's a certified biologist uh, and he worked for Quality Deer Management, which has changed its name. And Kip, it's the Deer Association now, National Deer Association. That's right. Yep. National Deer Association. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while for me to wrap my head around that. Cause, uh, <laughs> and Quality Deer Management is no longer... Uh, the QDMA uh, is no longer. Uh, we lost that name as as we merged with the National Deer Alliance. Uh, that and, and the Quality Deer Management Association came together. Um, so our new organization is called the National Deer Association. So, uh, yeah, the, the former QDMA uh, 
while we have many of the same things that we do now, uh, but uh, that that formal name is no longer. Wow. Nice. And we'll, we can get into that a little too. But, you know, Kip's a smart fellow. He graduated from Penn State with a ma- uh, yeah with a mas- and a master's from uh, the UNH. Is probably how you got to New Hampshire, huh? Doing your master's up here. So, and then we. I certainly had a, had a big, it was a big reason why I was able to come back there for sure. Yeah. So, and then we hired him for a while. And then you just had to go home, didn't you? You had to go home to Pennsylvania. That was, uh, that was the calling, I would imagine. Yeah. It definitely was. Uh, I had been out of the state for about a decade, both uh, working for the state of Florida and the state of New Hampshire, and then uh, grad school there in New Hampshire. So uh, I was ready to get back closer to Pennsylvania. And and at that time, I was a, a member of QDMA, but uh, they posted the first position, uh, a Northeast Regional Director uh, working out of Pennsylvania. So uh, timing-wise, uh, it was it was meant to be. So I uh, moved back to Pennsylvania. I took that position and uh, Man, that was almost 20 years ago now, Wayne. It's hard to believe it's been that long. It flies. It <laughs> flies. And, and now you are the chief conservation officer for the Deer Association. That is correct. Uh, that's I'm, quite I'm a title. Still a wildlife biologist. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's a bit of it's still a, a little a little strange for me to, to wrap my head around as well. Uh, uh, prior to this, I had been promoted to our, our director of conservation, so I oversaw all of the, the education and outreach and all the research stuff that QDMA did. And then as part of that merger, there was also a reorganization of, of some titles, and so uh, I still have essentially the same position, but uh, all of our senior staff now has chief in front of their name. So we have the chief communications officer, you know, the chief financial officer. And uh, being that I ran our conservation department, I'm now the chief conservation officer. Isn't that great? So, That's, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you didn't even have to get promoted up through the ranks. You just, you, you got it. Everything's in the title. <laughs> That's right. And uh, of course, with my background, and uh, you're not the first, uh, you know, uh, wildlife officer that has uh, prodded me about that or, or mentioned <laughs> something about it. And I've had some that don't know me that had said, oh, man, I, I've read some of your stuff. I thought you were a biologist. I didn't realize, you know, you run law enforcement. So, uh, um, yeah, so the title definitely. Uh, oh, you're going to have to live up to know, that now. A, you're going to, you know, become. I know. And you are yes, part of the wow. thin green line as of today, officially. Oh. But um, you've been part of that. For a very, very long time. There isn't too many other people in the United States that come to my mind when I when I think about asking a question about deer and get it from an authoritative source. Mm-hmm. I think Kip Adams. So you, you've, you've mm-hmm. definitely branded yourself for the last 20 years, Kip, and a really, really good job. And I'm glad what you're doing what you're doing and to have somebody with your qualifications being the chief conservation officer. I'm, I'm really good with that, and I'm really happy about that too. So um, I'll... Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a very nice compliment. Yeah. So let, yeah, let's. Kip, it's, go it's, I was going to say, Kip, one, it's great to have you on the show and, and, and see and meet you for the first time. Wayne's spoken very highly of you, the work you guys have done together in the past. But uh, talk to us about, as chief conservation officer of this national organization, um, you're bringing your knowledge outside of Pennsylvania, obviously, which is just fantastic. And something we're going to dive into, one of the hot button items that we can't wait to pick your brain about is chronic wasting disease. Um, I've transplanted from the Silicon Valley of California, where I was a lieutenant running a special ops unit uh, of conservation officers there, up to northwestern Montana um, on the Canadian border. Um, absolutely amazing mule deer and whitetail country and elk country. I mean, really, you know, kind of the dream spot for hunting. I'm and jealous. then we get CWD coming up a couple of years ago and now we're doing sampling and CWD tags and we're in constant analysis with our, you know, fish, wildlife and parks, um, conservation officers here. Um, but just tell us a little bit about what you're doing on the national scope, um, what that job entails for you before we start diving into some of those, uh, those hot button items. Sure. Uh, I'm very lucky with what I get to do at, at NDA. Um, I do live in Pennsylvania. Um, I work in 20 to 25 different states a year. So uh, I get to, to see wow. you know, a lot of really good people, um, work with a lot of hunters and landowners and, and almost every single state wildlife agency. So uh, I'm very blessed to have worked. Kip, I think you got unplugged because you just went out. How's that? Is that oh, better? You're better. Yeah. You're, you're back. Five by five, I think buddy. there's a button on here. Um, I think I might have hit that button. That's, that's good. Five by five. I can cut that that's out. Great. So. <laughs> uh, where would you like me to pick up? Uh, just you were mentioning uh, 20 plus other states you're working okay. with. Yeah. 
Gotcha. So I'm blessed and I get to work in 20 to 25 states a year. So uh, I'm always visiting, you know, with good people uh, at cool places, work with almost every state wildlife agency. And, uh, and I'm blessed to have worked for New Hampshire Fish and Game and Florida Game and Fish so that I can, I know what it's like to be on that side and understand that it's about more than just the biology that you know, those agencies are working with the social nature of hunters mm-hmm. and landowners and the political nature of what the legislators want. So it, it has done me a lot of good, you know, to be able to, to relate to both sides and in many cases, bring the two sides together, you know, to, to help uh, improve deer management or habitat management or whatever the case may be, because uh, at the end of the day, you know, we all want to have healthy wildlife resources. And in many cases, it's just a matter of, you know, uh, particularly from the public side, maybe not understanding everything that goes into providing, you know, healthy populations and good hunting opportunities. Yeah. You said that very well. Um, and, and I would imagine by combining these two associations that that was to meet that goal in a better way, wasn't it? It really was. And, uh, you know, historically, QDMA was really, really good at the education side. So we, we were really uh, successful at teaching hunters, you know, about deer biology and, and deer management and how to enhance habitat for deer. And and uh, we were not, well, we didn't spend as much time on the advocacy side or, you know, we're working with legislators, you know, advocating for good policy. But that's one thing that the, the National Deer Alliance was really good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, QDMA uh, started the National Deer Alliance back in two. 2015. And it was developed to be an advocacy arm for the organization. And it was always supposed to be a part of us. Well, um, through, you know, a myriad of things, uh, it ended up being a separate organization. And it went on to be very successful in the advocacy arena for hunters and wildlife and state and federal wildlife agencies. Mm. Well, uh, with COVID and everything last year, we actually had a good chance to have a discussion about working more closely together because we had continued to work together since 2015 and in many cases just duplicated some of the the advocacy efforts and right. uh, through that process we realized manual we got a second chance to do the right thing and uh, so we merged uh, last summer it was announced officially in the fall so uh, I think the press release went out in early November so you know we joked and said that we were we were born in the peak of the rut which was, was very appropriate <laughs> for a, for a deer organization. But uh, awesome. what, what that really brought to us now is, you know, just that strength and advocacy presence. And we can just do so much more to help fight bad legislation and, you know, to help state agencies with that and to help hunters with that. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with what has happened because of that merger and, uh, and what the future, what the future holds for us. That's super exciting, Kip. And you, you mentioned your, your 25, 26 plus states um, in the U.S., which is awesome. Are you adding more states? Is there, are you starting to see, you know, more of the West Coast states and the Southwest um, reaching out as well and integrate with them? Because, man, coming from California, I can tell you uh, with the black-tailed deer herd issues and uh, big population centers, you know, having that input and having management schemes that are really good for the whole country come into play and we don't get a lot of it out there and I'm, I'm hoping to you know see more of it and it'd be neat to know that you guys are uh, are growing and we can help promote your input in other states where you might not be at yeah and we are um, we have members in, in all 50 states and several awesome. foreign countries the majority of our work is in the eastern two-thirds of the U.S. Uh, if you draw a line right down on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, about 97% of the whitetails in the U.S. live east of that line. Right. So that's where we do most of the work, but we are doing more work west of that as well, uh, particularly from the advocacy end. Um, we have uh, in uh, an agreement, or at least we have done a bunch of work with the Mule Deer Foundation to help them with the policy stuff or the advocacy work. You know, they do a great job managing uh, uh, habitat and working for mule deer and working with state agencies in the West, but there's not nearly the advocacy presence that we have in the East. So, so we do quite a bit of deer work, I'm sorry, of advocacy work in the West and are looking at doing a bunch more. And that's one of the reasons that actually our name, you know, we got rid of the whitetail part of it. And, uh, you know, our tagline is that we're united for deer, you know, not just whitetails, but, you know, all deer species. And you talk about California. We actually just met within uh, the last two weeks with the California Deer Association nice. um, on some issues that, that they're having there and then some help that we can provide them. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely expanding and getting more into the Western, uh, third of the U.S., and, uh, but certainly from a complementary nature to the Mule Deer Foundation and others there. 
Well, it's super cool to hear you're part of CDA and you've had contact with them because back in my law enforcement career, when that organization started, the founding fathers of the California Deer Association are very close friends. And we worked a lot of poaching cases actually on their ranches, um, you know, that they were so passionate about managing properly for good blacktail habitat, uh, good genetics and things like that. Uh, That's super cool to hear. And uh, certainly we'll, we'll promote those efforts any way we can on the podcast, but kudos to what you guys are doing on that national front out west as well oh good deal it's a small world isn't it yeah it really is <laughs> sounds like there's something for everyone with the national deer association from you know what you bring in from your experience with quality deer management to you know fluid pot land development all the way to advocacy all the way across the board that that sounds a uh, pretty exciting i can see why it was such a good merger yeah i, th- I think so and you know um we have the four big areas that we're working on. One, you know, is is R three, which is you know the recruitment and reactivation mm-hmm. retention. So you know, it's about making sure that we we can introduce hunters and you know and have hunters for the future. So certainly something for all hunters there. Uh, diseases is one of the big focus. Yes. You know, CWD is is by far the biggest threat to the future of our deer herds today. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time, you know, sharing information on that, helping provide, uh, you know, research for that. Um, directing research, et cetera, just to, to help combat that issue. Um, obviously, the advocacy part that we've already talked about and the education part, you know, that, that's what we've always been very good at. Hunters are more knowledgeable today than, than ever before about, mm-hmm. you know, the mechanics of deer and biology and that. Uh, I think our, our, uh, our forefathers were, were better woodsmen than a lot of people today. But uh, as far as actually understanding the animal and how to create good habitat for it, hunters today are far more knowledgeable. So, uh, you know, that's a very good thing. So uh, we're, we're proud of that and we want to see that continue. Mm, yeah. Well, let's get into some of those hot, uh, you know, those big topics. Uh, CWD, I know John's very concerned because he's seen, you know, what it's done to his area recently. Uh, New Hampshire, I don't believe we've had a case uh, yet in the wild. I know we've taken very stringent. I remember, you know, the first year that we uh, said you can't bring in, you know, animals with bones in them anymore. And everybody did. And all we did was do search warrants on meat lockers. And then we, we burned them. We, you know, and then everybody stood up and said, holy these guys are taking this serious. And yeah, it is serious. And we were taking it serious and we were confiscating whole deer and then incinerating them. So those guys that went hunting, big bucks, small deer, it didn't matter. They went to the incinerator if they were from New York, uh, a CWD state, uh, anywhere. And uh, that that's when everybody in New Hampshire, I, I will say, it was shocked yeah. and it was shock and awe. And it, and it achieved its goals because now when people go, they know, debone everything get all that off, don't bring it back. I, th- I think that message was sent very clear that time. And I think, uh, you know, across the country, we were doing similar things. So, so CWD, let, let, let's talk about it. How can we help? Uh, what's the hunter need to know about it? Um, so much. John's, you know, out in Montana, seeing f- on the first line of affecting his, you know, whitetail population, very concerned mm-hmm. there because I've seen the deer he shoots and I'm, I'd be concerned too. <laughs> And and, and Kip, on that, if you don't mind, um, just for our listeners and viewers that don't know what chronic waste disease is exactly, Mm -hmm. um, we use it as a buzzword all the time. And up here, we're familiar, but we've never really defined it and how pervasive this stuff is on on a disease biological level and how how tough it is and and hard to get rid of. Um, If you could just give an overview, that would be super helpful and much appreciated. Sure. Chronic waste and disease or CWD is 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 a disease that essentially in deer, it takes a long time to manifest itself or to kill the animal. And it kills them by essentially eating holes in their brain. And, and then the animal just wastes away to nothing. Hence the name chronic waste and disease. Mm-hmm. Now, the things that the hunters should know about CWD is that uh, one, uh, there is no vaccine for it. There is no cure for it. And all deer are susceptible to it. 100% of the deer that come into contact with us can die. So obviously that alone lets you know, hey, this is pretty significant for the deer herd. Um, it's something that was identified in the late 1960s and early 1970s at Colorado State. So, and it stayed in the Western US for a long time. So, so most whitetail hunters, you know, in the East, you know, kind of heard of it, but didn't really, weren't impacted by it and didn't know about it. All of that changed in 2001 when it was confirmed in Wisconsin. So for the first time, it was east of the Mississippi River. And since 2001, it has spread to 26 total states in the U.S., 
four provincial or Canadian provinces and then a few foreign countries. So what's happened over the last couple of decades is it has exploded across the landscape. So suddenly it's not just a handful of hunters out West where there really weren't many people or many hunters anyway, to, you know, a lot of Eastern States with high densities of deer and high densities of hunters are, are being impacted. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about this disease. It doesn't kill quickly. So we don't find a lot of dead animals. So right. some people say, well, if we're not finding dead animals, it's not a big deal. Well, the reality of it is deer can have this and most deer won't show any symptoms for, for 18 to 24 months. Wow. But once they do start showing symptoms, they go downhill very rapidly and die. However, what we know now from research is that most deer that get the disease will die from something else before they ever show a symptom. So hunters don't see it. They may die to you know, a predator, a car, a hunter, or something else. And mm -hmm. some will say, well, if that's the case, well, that's fine then. But the reality is that that's not okay because deer that have CWD die at two to three times the rate of deer that don't have the disease. So you take whatever you'd like to hunt, you know, right. mountain goats, you know, bighorn sheep, turkeys, squirrels, anything. If there's a certain segment of that population that dies at two to three times the rate of others, you can see this is a bad thing. This is a right. really bad, and that's why this is such a big deal. Now, add on to that, any deer that has this disease, they shed the infectious materials that then other deer can contract the disease. So it's not like, well, I have it at some point I'm going to die, but I can't give it to either of you. If I have this disease and you're around me, I can look completely normal, doesn't, don't seem to have any symptoms, but yet just by being near me, you guys can then contract the disease as well. So that is why this disease is so dangerous through a deer herd and why wildlife professionals you know, are, are spending so much time trying to limit the spread and slow this down until we can, uh, can find a cure for it. And, and Kip, no, it's great to, to have that, you know, to, to show how pervasive and how bad this disease really is. Um, but it's highly contagious as you're talking about how is it contracted animal to animal? Because we hunters are hearing all kinds of different things like, um, you know, from actually contact between the animal, um, animal to animal, um, also elk. We've seen it in, in, in some elk numbers and limited numbers up here in Montana. So it doesn't seem to be limited just to your Although, am I correct in saying it's primarily deer species at this time? And can it be contracted in feed on the ground? Uh, and how, how contagious is this stuff? Uh, it's, it's very contagious. Um, it is, uh, thus far, we know that it impacts several deer species, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, moose, reindeer. Wow. Um, so likely caribou also can be impacted. Uh, it hasn't been shown in caribou, but it has in reindeer. So it's likely that, that they can. And there's probably some other uh, you know, deer species as well that they just haven't identified it in yet. Um, for whatever reason, it is far more, or white tails and mule deer are far more susceptible to it. It appears in either elk or moose. So uh, in elk populations where it's well established, um, it just seems to exist at much lower prevalence rates than in either white tail or mule deer herds, which is a good thing for elk for sure. Right. Um, as far as sharing it, um, they can share it by direct contact because we know that the disease can be, or the, at least the infectious parts of this disease can be found in the blood, in the urine, in feces, in saliva, in semen. Um, so that's why they don't want you, you know, in some states have outlawed the use of natural deer urine because they know those materials are there. Um, mm -hmm. However, the, some of those uh, mediums transfer the disease much easier than others. For example, uh, the concentration of the, the materials in saliva are way higher than they are in blood or I'm sorry, than they are in, in urine. And, and that's why many states have said, we're not going to outlaw urine because the likelihood of getting it from urine is so, so infinitesimally small. It's not zero, but it's very small. But uh, the, the materials are also in the muscle tissue. They exist in the muscle tissue at somewhere near 100,000 times the concentration that they do in urine. So, so there's, there's many different potential ways that deer can, can move this to each other. Um, scientists don't understand all of them yet, but we at least know where they can identify those materials. It's also in the ground. It can be bound up in the dirt, so it stays in the dirt. Studies have now shown that plants grown in dirt that has them as materials can actually uptake these materials and then expose them in the leaves. So if it, so they know it's in the leaves, 
They haven't shown that if a deer comes and eats the leaves, that the deer will become CWD positive, but they have at least identified that, yes, they can be moved into the leaves. So, so this stuff moves all over through the environment from deer to deer and, you know, an indirect transmission. So that, that can be very confusing for, for hunters and mm. for managers, but we do know the most likely two ways to move the disease are one is by moving live animals because there's no practical and use live animal test. They're tr they have some ones that are pretty good now, but none are uh, 100% effective. So you can move a live animal looks completely fine and end up having the disease. Mm -hmm. So the best two ways to move it are to move live animals and to move the high risk parts of harvested animals. And that's what Wayne was talking about. People moving these carcasses into New Hampshire, you know, deer they shot. So, at, so as hunters here, you know, some people like to just blame the deer farms and deer farms are certainly a big reason this has moved around. As hunters, we need to make sure that we are doing our own part and not moving these high risk parts of the carcasses. Right. And the high risk parts are like the eyes, the brain, the spleen, the backbone. So that's why so many states now have regulations that you can't bring all of those parts in. You harvest the deer, you debone it, you know, or whatever leave those on site or take them to a landfill. Don't cross county lines. Don't cross state lines because, uh, you know, moving those um, has been shown to also move the disease from one area to another. <clears throat> wow. So th this thing is, is a little more uh, pervasive and a much bigger problem than most people think on its surface. <clears throat> and again, thanks for all the, <clears throat> the feedback on this, but when it comes to management plans and looking at what we're doing up here in, in little Lincoln County, <clears throat> excuse me, guys, Montana, and really uh, for the entire state of Montana, there's a management plan where it's most pervasive, but um, you know, we're seeing extra tags for does and bucks that are strictly CWD tags. So we can collect more animals to try to get a demographic, a real statistical, you know, uh, a valid research base to show how pervasive this stuff is in populations. And I want to say out of several thousand deer we took here locally, we had about six or seven um, that did test positive for CWD and which was bad. We had six or seven, but it was actually more optimistic and, and better numbers than we anticipated when we had all these tags in, in a massive zone that covered most of our, our home County methods like that. Um, if you can explain to us why our, you know, different agencies are doing management plans like that and what the end goal is in implementing those management plans and are they effective and are there other ways around that management plan we can be more effective? I know it's a lot, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate your input on it. Well, now, um, hunters often get upset when they see some of that stuff, particularly, you know, additional deer removed in an area. Uh, if there's targeted removal programs, you know, hunters get all crazy, like, oh my, you know, we don't want to do this. The reality of it is those are very good programs and they're very much needed. And the reason for that is there's a couple of things they're doing with that. One is that by going into an area where you have identified the disease and sampling additional deer, either with hunters, and that's the best way to do it, or, you know, sharpshooters or whatever after the fact, by going into those areas and sampling, it allows the agency to under have a better feel for what is the prevalence rate of the disease in the area. Because if you go in and sample and you find the prevalence rate is very low, the next step that the agency will do to manage that is very different than if you go into that area and find that the prevalence rate is very high. Uh, perfect example, some states now, when they find it in a new area, they sample around and they will like, confirm, or at least they will believe that, you know what, this is probably a recent uh, disease in this area. So it's pretty new. It's probably not very prevalent yet. And then you have a much better chance of stopping that disease right there. Compare that to Tennessee that found a CWD for the first time a couple of years ago. And when they identified the first case, they went in, sampled around it and found, oh my gosh, they found a lot of it. And what they wow. realized after testing for a few months was that disease was probably in that area for about 10 years before they found it. Gotcha. So how they then attack that is very, very different than an agency that finds you know, a very low prevalence rate. So some hunters will say, I can't believe you're going to go and kill these extra deer and now you're not finding anything. Well, actually, that's good that you're not finding a lot. It's just prevalence rate is very low. But one of the other things that's good about it is there's a lot we don't know about CW reduced deer herds in that area to just limit the spread of it. And so anything we can do to keep that spread low is a good thing. So even if they go in, in most cases, these extra removal programs, like you mentioned, you know, they're not 
taken a lot of deer, at least not relative to the numbers in the landscape. So it does reduce the herd a little bit, whether it's deer or elk or whatever. And then a lot of it even more. And as hunters, that's really what we're trying to do here. We want to limit the spread such that as allow the science time to catch up and provide us a cure. So most of the country does not have CWD yet. You know, we said it's in 26 states, but most counties that have deer or elk do not have the disease. So the right. battle is not lost by any means. So the more we can do now to contain it where it is and to keep it from spreading, the better off we're going to be when we do find a way to beat it. And, and I'm absolutely confident that we will find a way to beat it. You know, there's a lot of smart people working on this. So uh, um, we just need to make sure that when we do, that the disease isn't so widespread that, uh, that we just simply can't uh, administer, whether it's a vaccine or whatever it is to all those deer. So um, limit spread now and uh, buy us some time. Yeah, one, yeah I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm really impressed with how we've done it up here in Montana. I mean, we I was surprised from just a conservation management standpoint and, you know, both me and Wayne's history of working in an agency. Um, sometimes, you know, you're kind of slow to play catch up with the science and implement a plan and work around hunting seasons and all of that. But um, up in Montana, they just they got right on it and it really showed up last year for the first time. And it was a very comprehensive plan and, and alarming. I mean, it kind of scared all of us when we went, man, this stuff lives in frozen ground and it can it can withstand, you know, 20 below temperatures for a whole winter. Where I mean, we're basically on the Canadian Arctic border here. We get some cold, cold snaps. And it can't kill this virus as things like, you know, uh, like a bioweapon, so to speak, for our animals when you really look at how nasty this yeah. stuff is. Um, but, but the science is good and, and, I, and, we're, and we're trying to stay ahead of it. Um, but talk to us about how bad this stuff is in an animal that a hunter uh, harvests tags has no idea about CWD. They're, they're not getting tests for it. Um, maybe it's a black-tailed deer, let's say, in the Silicon Valley foothills in my old stomping grounds of California, and it's just there. What are the dangers with that? Um, can a CWD-infected animal be uh, you know, eaten safely if it's cooked right, if brain matter and uh, the, the tissue and bones and everything else aren't part of the program? What are the dangers there, and why are we uh, so critical about these carcasses? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the first thing, and I've heard people say that, you know, well, as long as you cook it appropriately, is it okay? And the answer is no, um, because to, to, to get rid of this, the uh, infectious materials, you have to incinerate it at, at almost 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, yeah, way, way in advance or excess of, uh, you know, of what you're going to get on your cooking stove, you know, even if your wife is the worst cook in the world, uh, <laughs> she's not, she's not getting it to 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. So, so no cooking does absolutely nothing, nothing for this. Um, the, I will start by saying, you know, it has never been shown to cross the species barrier and be in humans. So there's never been a human that's been confirmed to have uh, this disease. However, there is a human form of this. And actually this disease has forms in many different animals. You know, the CWD is in deer, uh, BSE, which is bovine spongiform encephalopathy is in cows. That's what we refer to as the mad cow disease, very similar disease, just in cows. The human version is the crutchfeld jacob disease. So mm. uh, we have something that, you know, prion biology, prion is what actually causes this disease. You know, it's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. A prion is something that's separate. And that's why we can't kill it. Um, the, the human version of the prion disease is Crutchfeld-Jakob. So we have, you know, prion scientists that have worked on the human version of this for a long time. So CWD has never been shown to cross the species barrier, but uh, the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization both strongly encourage people to do not eat an animal that has CWD. Uh, just don't do it. Um, the only way to know if the animal has the disease is to have it tested. Because right. the vast majority of the deer, in excess of 97% of the deer that test positive for CWD each year, don't show any symptoms. So, you know, a hunter has killed them or something. So there's no way to look at the animal and think, man, this looks good. This looks healthy. It may look very healthy, you know, but it can have the disease. So the only way to know is to have it tested. And that's why uh, CDC, same as us, the NDA rec recommends anybody hunting in the CWD zone you know, have that deer tested before you eat it, you know, and wait for that satisfactory test to come back. Um, 
you know, does that mean if you process it yourself, like I do, we process all of our own animals. Uh, if we happen to be in a zone, we just keep that labeled and separate and, and just wait for that test to come back before we eat them. And is it an inconvenience? It absolutely is an inconvenience, but sure. it's an inconvenience that I think is worth doing. And it's just something that hunters are going to have to accept, you know, and be willing to do in the future. So, uh, you know, I have a young son, I have a young daughter, you know, I don't, and I'm, I am the last person in the world that worries about things. I don't wash my hands enough, even now with COVID, you know, I don't, I just don't worry about things. And my wife would be the first one to say, you know, I can't believe that something really bad hasn't happened to you yet. And even with that, I would not eat a CWD positive deer. I just wouldn't do it. You know, you shouldn't. And I wouldn't encourage anybody to do that. The last thing I say about that is uh, each country has their top prion institution. In the U.S., it's at Case Western uh, Reserve University in Ohio. I am only where I live in northern Pennsylvania. I am only about four or five hours away from it. So I have been there and I have worked with some of their scientists. And these are the leading prion folks in the entire United States. You know, people way smarter than, uh, than, than most people could ever possibly want to be. And they have been working on the human prion diseases for a long time. Well, they are now very interested in this deer in CWD, you know, the deer version of it, mm. just because it is becoming so rampant, it is spreading so much. And obviously because so many people eat venison mm. and, uh, and there is people have eaten CWD positive venison probably for years, at least some have. And then, then sure. there's a, some States, I was at a deer meeting in Nebraska several years ago where that state knew of one individual that had harvested two different CWD positive animals separated by a few years had consumed both of them. And they said that you know, he was one of the most watched people in the entire state just because they knew he had done this. So they were really watching him closely. Well, these prion folks are doing, you know, much of the same thing. And what they told me was, um, they are less convinced that there's a species barrier that blocks it than the wildlife experts are. Many of the wildlife disease folks feel that the, the pre or the species barrier is, is heavy enough that it probably won't get to humans. I will say this, the human prion folks are not nearly as convinced that that is true as, as the wildlife ones are. And what they said partly is it is every prion disease looks a little bit different in the animals that have it. So they said, it's entirely possible that, it, that it's in humans right now. And we just haven't identified it yet. We haven't, right, they said right. they don't know that that's true. They wouldn't say that that's true, but they certainly wouldn't discount the possibility. So they said, you know, they said, you guys as an organization are absolutely speaking the right message and encouraging folks, get your animals tested and do not eat one that tests positive. Yeah. And I mean, why take the chance, right? I mean, rather, rather we're seeing signs of it crossing and we can actually test it uh, if we've consumed a deer that's infected with CWE that we don't know. It just seems like too much of a risk. And I mean, COVID certainly taught us that, if nothing else. So um, one thing up in Montana, we we have up here, and, and you're right, there are inconveniences to it, but uh, agencies that are dealing with this, and I think any, any other state, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just not familiar with the eastern states and how they're managing it, I mean, you know, it's not even just like a deer check station that you do every weekend, you know, at one particular area where you're going to get your deer checked, you're going to get your tag validated. Uh, we're going to get, um, you know, maybe get some necropsy data or whatever the case may be, get some aging data. We have check stations all over Montana during these things, and they're open pretty much all week long um, for CWD check stations with a lot of staff. So, the wait isn't that long. Um, we learn a lot as hunters watching the biologists go through that process. Um, I mean, I was taking photographs. I was asking questions, just fascinated, you know, just from a management of love and deer species so much, how interesting this process is biologically and scientifically to diagnose. So it's, you know, mentioned the inconvenience. It is certainly there, but um, with, with us working together from a hunter side conservation aside to the science and to the, you know, basically the regulatory agencies, I just encourage people to work with your regulatory agencies on this. And we're certainly trying to do that up here because it's the only way we're going to beat it, you know? Hmm. Nope. I agree. And I think it's great. We strongly encourage folks to, you know, to work with the, the state wildlife agency, you know, with their local biologists, with their local law enforcement officer. I mean, it just makes it better all the way around. And, uh, each state's a little different with how they handle the CWD testing. Some have mandatory sites throughout the whole year. Some only have certain times they have to be tested. Others are voluntary. Uh, I'll say this, this past year with COVID absolutely hammered some states with the, the number of samples they got. For example, Michigan, you know, in the past was, was sampling close to 30,000 deer a year. They got 2,000 samples last year. Jeez. Minnesota samples fell off. You know, Missouri's were way down. 
uh, Maryland went to zero. They didn't even get it. So last year was very different because of COVID. But, um, but yeah, most hmm. states make it pretty easy to get stuff sampled. My state of Pennsylvania in the disease zones, there are drop boxes all throughout those zones. Harvest a deer, you know, you just take the head to it, you know, and, and can leave it there. So there, there's lots of ways to be able to get them tested. And uh, that, that's important for the agency to have that data, to know where they are and what the prevalence rate is. It's important for the people to make sure they're, uh, you know, eating a healthy animal. And uh, a perfect example of this, uh, several years ago now, I was in Northwest Colorado elk hunting and uh, got my tag was lucky enough to, to kill an elk, um, nice. had no idea where I was, was in, was in a CWD zone and, uh, oh. uh, processed that animal myself in the mountains, uh, you know, flew it home. Uh, we consumed the whole thing. And I find out later, you know, wow, that was from a zone. Um, we said, you know, we, we absolutely need to do something about this. Um, as part of that, what we have done is we have partnered with Onyx. You know, a lot of hunters are very familiar with Onyx. Sure. There's now an NDA, National Deer Association, CWD layer on the Onyx app. It's a, it's a free service. Anybody can get it. And what it is, is we keep a national database for every single county that confirms a disease. Wow. Um, states have zones that are a little bigger because some will find, a, find it and then they implement a disease zone that might be one, three, five, ten miles around it. Um, each state's a little different. So what we did is just said, we are only going to identify, you know, every time a county finds a disease, that's what we will add to this app layer. So the actual disease zone may be bigger than this, but at least hunters now have a resource. They can look on that app and that uh, comes up as pink. So uh, mm. every single county on every state, you know, is in the Onyx layer and uh, every single one of them with that, where CWD has been identified is recorded. And that's something that we literally update on a weekly basis with Onyx. So uh, that is a great way for hunters, at least to be, you know, if they're traveling to be aware, am I now right. in a, you know, disease county, you know, is it here, you know, just to help provide some more information to them so they can make good decisions about getting animals sampled and, and, uh, and being safe. Yeah. It's outstanding. I haven't seen that on the program yet and haven't, mm. haven't used Onyx for a while since I'm at yeah. a hunting season, but that's good to know. And we'll pass that on, especially because like you, we travel all over the country, right? If we go certain places for elk, maybe we do an Eastern whitetail hunt. Guys want to come up for a spring uh, or fall black bear hunt here in Montana and, and overlap it with the whitetail hunt. So great, great stuff. And we'll pass mm. that along. Thank you. Yeah. And that's so important. That's on every hunter's mind. When you said it was in the, in the meat, the muscle tissue, Kip, that, that was my question the whole time. And then John brought it up. I'm like, that was on John's mind as much as it was mine. So mm. every hunter out there, when you bring that up, that's what, that's exactly what they're thinking. Can I eat this? Is this okay? Is this, and I bet you that's probably one of the number one questions you get about CWD is, is it safe to eat? Mm. Yeah, nope, that's right. And a lot of people think that it is because if the animal doesn't look sick, they think it must be okay. And mm. in many, many, many diseases, that's true, but that is not true with CWD. Right. Right. No doubt. Um, some of the other things, uh, you know, when it comes to spreading disease, I always think of and uh, feeding of deer. Uh, do you guys take a position on that? Because um, it's different from baiting. Sometimes we use baiting to bring in during the hunting season to use it as a management tool to reduce to per herds. Uh, feeding of deer, as you know, in northern New Hampshire, we have deer yards. I'm sure they do in uh, Montana as well. In any northern area, the deer have a tendency to yard, and people have a tendency to feed them. Have you guys ever taken a position on that? Because um, I know gathering of deer usually is a spreading of disease opportunity. Yeah, um, we, we do have a position on that. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort teaching people how to enhance habitat for deer. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how we want to see people feed deer, not mm -hmm. out of a 50 pound bag. Right. And uh, so we strongly encourage people to, to get involved, you know, with habitat work. We have all kinds of free resources to teach people how to do it themselves. Um, there's a lot of negative issues associated with feeding. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the winter feeding issues, Wayne, that we used to deal with in New Hampshire, you know, uh, where people weren't feeding them throughout the year they just start dumping right. stuff in the winter which is the absolute worst time to do something like that um so in addition to the you know the negative biological consequences to the animal itself anytime that you unnaturally congregate a bunch of animals like that you increase the risk of of moving the disease and uh you know some people will say well the feed isn't transferring the disease and they're right the feed is not you know the, it's not in the feed itself but the act of feeding 
if you have an animal that is positive and you bring a whole bunch of them in into uh, you know close proximity, then you just increase the chances that they are going to spread the disease. So, so that's where the feeding part comes into this. And there's lots of uh, examples, you know, of mineral licks and bait stations and feed sites and all that, where you know a CWD positive animal is showing up there, and saliva is a very good right. way for the animals to move it from one another. And uh, you know when they're you know, swap and spit and urine and everything else mm-hmm. at those, whether it's a bait site or a feed site, which one of the reasons that makes them very, very different from food plots or agricultural plantings, because in most cases at a feed site or at a, a bait station, they're eating right off the ground where there's urine and feces, et cetera. In most food plots, they're at least feeding up off the ground mm. until, you know, or unless the, the food plot is actually eaten to the ground. But in most cases, they are not feeding right where all that other stuff is. So, so food plots are a different part of that, but, uh, but yeah. Feeding, baiting, um, yeah, not not good um, once you have a disease in an area. And of course, out west, there's huge issues, particularly with you know winter feeding of elk, you know, mm-hmm. on those feed yards, and you know, and Wayne, we dealt with a lot of political stuff in New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole uh, Jackson Hole, you know, wintering herd. I mean that. That takes the politics to a whole different level yeah. relative to that. So, but, but yeah, yeah. We, we don't want to congregate animals when there's a disease involved. Yeah, no, no good point. So what else is on the National Deer Association's radar as far as uh, advocation or things like that? You know, certainly, uh, you know, disease was right up there at the top. Um, Somewhat one of your other goals that you, you're trying to achieve? One of the biggest things right now is is just in the R3 uh, movement, you know, Mm -hmm. is just uh, getting new hunters into the fold. Mm -hmm. And uh, this past year, as bad as COVID was, one thing that COVID actually was good for, I guess, is uh, if you have to find a silver lining, is that it introduced a lot of new hunters. There's a lot of states that for the first time in a long time sold more hunting licenses, you know, and got more people involved. Um, We have been involved in this for a number of years and, uh, we have something that we call our field to fork program, which is now a proven method for recruiting new hunters. Um, we have had great youth programs for a long, long time, and we continue to do those. But we realized about a decade ago, if you actually want to move the needle on hunter numbers, youth programs are not the way to do it. Right. You have to recruit adult hunters because a youth can want, have all the desire in the world, but he or she can't drive themselves hunting. You know, they can't go get their license. They can't yep. buy, you know, a gun or a bow. But, you know, so now people realize, you know, if you want a kid to go hunting, teach his mom or dad to hunt. Mm. And then, you know, he will get to go. You know, where I grew up, you know, my dad hunted, my grandpa hunted, my uncles hunted, all of my buddies hunted. It was the most natural thing in the world. Right. Um, but that's not the case today. You know, it's very, my kids at school and I live in an extremely rural area. Um, they certainly have a lot of friends that hunt, but but they have more friends that don't hunt, um, you know, than, than those that do. So we um, continue to do youth programs, but we got into this adult uh, onset mentoring program about a decade ago. And, and the idea of it was let's take people who never had the opportunity to hunt, maybe never even knew they wanted to, and take them hunting. Mm-hmm. And it was all surrounding this whole locavore movement or this food movement. And, uh, and our director of hunting heritage um, was in Athens, Georgia. Uh, that's where our, our headquarters used to be. And he started this by going to the local farmer's market. And he had v- venison that he had cooked. And this had, they didn't talk at all uh. about hunting. He was just there, you know, <laughs> folks. And, was, and he would ask them, would you like to try some venison? And that led to a conversation of, wow, that is really good. Um, is it local? Yes, this is local. In fact, you know, this was, this was harvested, you know, a mile from here or whatever. And awesome. and that led into, would you like to be able to get it? Oh yeah, I definitely would like to get this. You know, where can I buy it? Well, you can't buy it. However, <laughs> we can help you get this. So that's how this whole thing started. And then it evolved into like- a really, really good technique for acquiring people who adults who decided, you know, I want to hunt. Mm-hmm. So we started matching them. We would we would do go through this little education process. Uh, we would match them with a mentor, somebody you know that was with us, and then uh, and take them hunting. And then, uh, but it always ended, you know, with showing them how to process the animal and then cooking the animal at the end. That was a huge part of it. Well, what we did over a few years is took this from one program to two to three to to two states to ten states and realize we have a really good model because a few years into it, what we found was about eighty percent of the people that participated came back and bought a license the next year. So it was a it was a proven recruitment technique. So where we are right now with this is um, determine the way to scale this up because obviously we can't do this in every community, right. but 
we can teach mentors to do this. They can follow exactly what we did and be able to do this, you know, in every state and all these communities, because there is a whole world of adults out there, particularly that are based around the food part of this, Mm -hmm. that just never had the opportunity that any of us had growing up to hunt that absolutely love it. So, uh, so we are, we spend a bunch of time. Uh, so if you hear the term field to fork, um, that's, that's what this is all about. Uh, this adult onset hunting, hunting movement. Yeah, Kip, I really like the idea that we've done this so much here on the home front, you know, with my bandmates or people that are non-traditional hunters, they've never done it. And you feed them an appetizer, a sausage, you know, a little bit of a, a backstrap marinated. Oh, this is so good. Where can I buy this? <laughs> well, you can't. Your words. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is like the most organic and healthy meat I've ever tried. I can't, it doesn't even taste gamey. And then they're hooked. And then we're, we're, we're bringing them into the triple R's, you know, so um, hadn't really looked yeah. at it that way. And that's a great way to approach it is just lightly introduce them, get that hook. And, mm. you know, then we have the, uh, we have the field of fork uh, additions falling into place. So yeah, good, good thing right. you guys are on that. We're, we're promoting that as well. Good deal. And, you know, and it's, it's a very natural way for people to want to do it. And, and Wayne, certainly from your end, I guess, and John, yours too, it's, it's a refreshing way in some cases for how they view hunting and how they get into it. Because these people are not about all interested in baiting or all interested in the latest gadgets or interested in the biggest bucks. They're interested in the food part. Yeah. And we, we did one of these events in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago that I was a part of. And uh, there was a lady shot her first deer. She was probably 30 years old, say somewhere. In that. And uh, it was uh, during our archery season. She was using a crossbow because in many cases, they're still a little afraid of firearms. So states that allow crossbows or archery are a, a, a great way to introduce these because they're, you know, these people can become very proficient very quickly. They're, the crossbow is not intimidating, where in some cases firearms are. Uh, but but anyway, shoots this doe, you know, with this. And uh, of course, us as mentors, you know, we're all excited. We think about us, like you know, we want to get a picture taken with it. And yeah. so uh, the the mentor from it was QDMA at that point is congratulating her. And uh, he said, uh, you know, so they got to the deer and said, here, Joe, let me get a picture. And she said, oh no, a- absolutely not. Shoot absolutely refused to have her picture taken, you know, with the deer. Um, so uh, Ryan was like, oh, okay, no, no, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I just thought maybe you'd want to. And so uh, later that day, they're back at the, the uh, camp and uh, we did a processing. So I was showing them how to skin the animal, how to remove all the, you know, the cuts of meat, because in many cases, that's what they're more interested in. Right. And uh, so we have all these cuts of meat laid out on this table and uh, it was her deer and uh, the, the back straps were laying there and she came over and, uh, and I said, here, this is yours. Would you like to hold this? And she said, yeah. And she picked this back strap up and you could see the, she looked at her mentor and said, will you take a picture of me? And she held the back straps up. It was this grin from ear to ear. So he took a bunch of pictures and she was immediately on her social media, sending these to all of her friends. Look at what I got. It was the meat. That was the hook for her. So, uh, and that, so it does me a world of good. Every one of these that I go to, to try to just, you know, try to realize a little more on their motivations and, and how others see this, but uh, um, it's, it's incredible the connection to food. And then, so, you know, we have such a, a responsibility, I think as hunters, you know, to offer those mentoring services, you know, and provide this opportunity because now she is a huge advocate for hunting. She now buys the hunting license. She now buys, you know, a bow and some hunting clothing. And I mean, so that's perfect. So uh, mm. anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a good program. It's a very rewarding program and something we're, we're proud to be a, a big part of. Neat. Yeah. You can see that Kip, uh, just the way you talk about it. And it does mm-hmm. take a lot of pride when you bring somebody into the fold mm-hmm. and, and teach them those skills that so many people, like you said, this last year realized that maybe I need those skills. Maybe I need to learn that stuff. Maybe I need to purchase a firearm. Uh, and, and now to hold them, I think everybody is scrambling nationwide to see how we can hold these people. And programs like yours are going to be, you know, for sure. But I just I hope we're not too late in, in putting things in place to, to do to teach these people um, how to continue on. Uh, everybody says, yeah, now we got to retain them, but how do we have all these programs nationwide to retain mm-hmm. them for the amount of people that have come in? Um, that, that's my worry. Cause I, I want to hold them too. I want them to know everything that we know and, and to be able to go out and, uh, a survive on their own to, to be able to harvest something and process it, whether it's a grouse, whether it's a deer, whether it's a squirrel, 
Um, just a, just a great use of, uh, the natural resources that are renewable, uh, renewable resources. We talk about conservation a lot in this program. We talk about renewable resources, uh, you know, conservation versus preservation. So do you think, are, are we staged to retain these people or if we're not, what are the steps that, you know, you think we need to take nationwide to retain these people and to grow that? Well, I think that we're better positioned to retain them today than, than in the past. Um, more state wildlife agencies recognize the need for this and provide resources. Um, we have a huge part of, of what we do about providing resources for new hunters. Actually, in fact, we have a, a new part of our website, which is Deer Association forward slash new hunter com where these people who want to learn to hunt can go and sign up and then the next step from our end is to be able to match them with a mentor you know we have all kinds of resources for them to just learn you know that, that can get them into the fold and keep their interest um, what we see is a lot of these people you know they want to be involved but then they just if if they don't have the resources that they feel that they are involved they feel alienated and then they step back mm. so we need to make sure that we provide you know even just simple information on you know, like how to to acquire you know the right gear what gear do you need and in many cases just having that mentor um, is what makes a difference what we have found with uh, all of our programs is it's that community of new hunters that make them want to stay so we can give an individual all the resources or all the help he or she may or may not stay, but if they're part of a, a community where they have others that they can ask about, um, you know, ask questions. And, and sometimes, you know, they feel like they're asking dumb questions. So they may not want to ask, you know, you Wayne or you John, but if it's somebody that they know is brand new too, they are much more comfortable, you know, asking that stuff with them. Those are the type of resources right now that, that really need to be added into this. And uh, mm. we're doing it. Other organizations are doing it, and state wildlife agencies are, are doing a much better job with that. So, right. um, so let, let's hope we do have enough, you know, and continue adding to be able to keep them, because uh, there's a there's a huge interest and a bunch of new ones there right now that uh, that we don't want to lose. Mm. And being very data driven, that's what I like. You know, focusing on you know people that are interested, because John and I talk a lot. My 14 year old son. Um, and as I'm sure as your kids are involved in sports and things like that, that seems to be so much different than when we were growing up because there's so much opportunity for sports and playing sports that it, it takes up that time that we used to hunt and fish with our, our mm -hmm. grandfathers and our fathers. It takes up that time. So, but when you're out of college, all of a sudden you find yourself with time um, to do something. So, and if you haven't been brought up through that, um, you know, I, I demand that sometimes my son goes hunting with me and he enjoys it. It's just that we have to make that time. And un unlike mm. when I was growing up that that was all the time. So yeah. Just a well, even look at it as my baseball season as a kid, you know, it was a month, month and a half long. Mm. You were in, you were done. You know, my daughter's softball and my daughter's 14 or her softball season's five or six months long. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very lucky. She loves to hunt and she spends a lot of time with me, but it's, you are correct, Wade. It is very, very different from what it used to be. You know, there's so much more that, uh, you know, competes for their time. And any individual thing they do is so much uh, amplified today from what it used to be. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not just, you know, a one-month season anymore. It's a, a six-month season. So, yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, yeah, anything else, Kip, that you want to bring to the table that we haven't mm -hmm. talked about? Um, some of those are the, the major themes. I, I love that you guys have taken two organizations and put them into one very solid. Um, I'm excited about that. And, and I can, I can remember the National Deer Association. So all these years, it took me a while to remember quality deer management, but I, it's, it's, a, it's a lot simpler. And I like when things simplify for everybody. <laughs> I do as well. Uh, now I think we have covered a bunch. Um, yeah. I will throw out uh, a a plug for a resource that we provide to folks. Uh, every year we produce an annual deer report um, where we, we get, collect data from every single state wildlife agency and include information on state by state statistics on, you know, numbers of deer they shot, age of those deer, all kinds. So any deer nuts out there, you know, they just want to see what it's kind of a, a state of the union address for what's going on in the, in the deer world. Um, those are all on our website, which is deerassociation.com. They are all free downloads. So uh, we've been doing them since 2009, which is uh, it's crazy to think that uh, they go back that long. But uh, it's uh, they're used by hunters and, and state agencies and media folks uh, and any deer enthusiasts uh, all across uh, the world, really. So uh, um, any of your listeners that are that are you know that like deer and want to see that kind of information, uh, they can go there and get all that for free. Mm. Awesome. 
Yeah, that sounds great. And there's a membership, correct? I, when I saw on the website, you can be a member of the National Deer Association. That's right. Yep. It's yep. Yeah, we're a member-based organization, and we have members all over the country and actually all over the world. But uh, mm-hmm. yes, so it's thirty-five dollars a year. Um, that gets you uh, the member benefits, plus it gets you our Quality Whitetails magazine, which uh, which the only way to get it is to be a member. So um, yep. And, uh, cool. and then that gets you, uh, lots of other uh, perks with the organization, but, uh, but yes, we are member based and, uh, deer hunters from all over, uh, join. Nice. 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 Great. Well, really appreciate you joining us and good catching up after all these years. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's good to see you, Wayne and, and you, John. So, uh, thank you for what you guys do for sharing this type of information and, uh, letting people know about all the good things that, that happen when our natural resources are, uh, protected and then preserved and managed wisely. So uh, thank you guys for what you do. You bet. So good to meet you, Kip, and have you on the show. Thanks again. And anything we can do for you guys at the National Deer Association level, just let us know. Awesome. All right. That sounds great. You guys have a good day. 